Hello and welcome to the inaugural episode of the Coffee Trading Academy podcast. This is Ryan Delaney, your coffee price risk ninja here. Today we're going to kick off our first episode with a fantastic guest, the one and only David Street, the COO and one of the founding members of Commodity Weather Group. David has been a commodity meteorologist for 40 years, and in his first week on the job back in 1981, he was covering for the senior meteorologist, and guess what happened? A frost in Brazil. So there is truly nothing new under the sun for David. In this wide-ranging podcast, we cover both general advice and context that any coffee analyst or trader needs to know, and also the specifics of what's happening right now in the key coffee origins. We cover the Brazil frosts, how that unfolded and what the impact is. We cover the Brazil droughts and what the issue is with the upcoming rains. We go over the El Nino, La Nina phenomenon and what the implication is for this year. We cover the weather in Vietnam and the outlook for the crop there the Indian monsoons, the MJO, and the extensive rain in Colombia. This is truly a coffee market geek's dream, and I am sure that you will enjoy it as much as I did. Without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, David Strait. Before we go uh, into um, some of the more details of, of meteorology and using it for, for commodities, can you give us uh, uh, an idea of your background and kind of how you got into the business? Um, I think... If I'm not mistaken, I read 1981 somewhere as a uh, uh, as an entry into the into the business. But please go ahead. Yeah, sort of ancient history there. So um, it, is, it was interesting. I actually went to the uh, University of Nebraska to uh, become a CPA and uh, took an elective in meteorology, and the, <laughs> I've been haunted by it ever since. But uh, <laughs> I did really take to it and I went to the University of Wisconsin to get my master's degree. And that was what sucked me into the commodity side of things because uh, Gail Martell um, had started working on Wall Street um, and she was a grad student of Wisconsin and they were looking for somebody to work with her. And that's how the connection came. So um, my first job was uh, did start in 1981 on Wall Street working for E.F. Hutton at that time. So, so E.F. Hutton, uh, can you give me a little background there? I'm not, I'm not uh, familiar. Uh, E.F. Hutton was just a it was a, a, a trading a trading company, you know, that, that dealt with uh, commodities as well as all of the, the securities. Um, and so, you know, the, my, my first my first memory, of course, is it was the first week I was there. Gail hadn't been on vacation for many for a couple of years, and so she took off right away. And so I was left <laughs> thrown into the crazy defense. traders coming in and going, "What is this about a freeze in Brazil? And can you tell us what it impacted? What is it <laughs> impacting?" And I was I got baptism by fire on that one. So I, I my experiences with Brazil frost go back a long way. Uh, yeah. So it sounds like uh, there's nothing new under the sun, right? That's true. <laughs> um, awesome. So uh, that was uh, your, your start was on wall street. Um, and then I guess you worked in the industry for a while. You were advising traders uh, and then you, you branched out into your own business here. You, you became a partner and uh, can you tell us a little bit about the company you're working with now and, and how that got started and what, what right. you provide. I mean, we're Commodity Weather Group, and it's a group of, of four of us that started a, a company, two of us um, with uh, expertise on the agricultural side, and then two of us with uh, expertise on the energy side. Uh, so covering most of the you know major com commodity trading as far as that goes. Um, we you know started from scratch, and we're 
um, up to, oh gosh, I think about a thousand clients at this point and wow. uh, have a staff of about 15. So it's, it's been a nice growth potential for us over the last 10, 11 years. Really, really a, an exciting venture. Fantastic. So you've been in the business, let's say, uh, for some 40 years. Um, and uh, I guess at that point you went to college and um, uh, you studied meteorology you had professors, you were on the cutting edge of, of what it was at that time. Uh, and then you've seen the evolution of the last 40 years. So how has that changed? Like how, how, you know, we used to hear people talk about like, oh, the weather services can't even predict what's going to happen in two days from now, let alone two weeks ago from now. And now it feels like we're getting a lot more accurate in our forecasts um, and that we're able to see further and further out. Um, so can you speak to a little bit of the evolution of, uh, of, Climate yeah, forecasting. Uh, well, you know, now that I'm the old man, you know, <laughs> a lot of our employees are are youngsters, you know, just starting their careers. And I tell them about when we started, we had one computer model that went out two days and had a resolution of about half of a state. So <laughs> now we have about you know 20 models that we look at on a regular basis, you know, that go anywhere from six months to hourly, you know, so it, it, with resolution down to kilometers. So right. it's just a whole different ball game from, from the early days, for sure. And, you know, satellite imagery and, and the data that we received from that is so much better than we had back then. So it's just, a, a, it, it's an amazing process. And I can't imagine where we're going to be, you know, 10 more years down the road. Well, the one of the things I, I talk about in the courses that I teach in, in commodities is how a lot of the volatility in the markets is, is sort of inherent in the fact that you have a biological plant um, and then you have the weather. And the weather is sort of a, what do you call it, a complex system where it's something that's not entirely predictable. And it seems like in a lot of ways, it's about probabilities rather than predictions, right? Um, so if you are a trader, looking at meteorological data, looking at forecasts, what are some heuristics? What are some guidelines you can think of in terms of how accurate are forecasts and, and what are the different models we should be looking at? I mean, I, you know, obviously um, forecasts have become definitely more accurate because of the input that we have. Um, but, you know, weather is still weather and that, you know, add, always adds some, you know, um, surprises down the road. But the thing that it's most important for people to understand when you're dealing with agricultural commodities, as opposed to energy ones, is that timing is just everything. I mean, you know, say you're talking about the, the Brazil coffee crop, you know, the next two months are going to be crucial because rainfall um, after a drought like they've, and the frost events that they've suffered from, um, it's going to be critical for rainfall timing. And, it, and it's also, you know, we can have one rain event come in there. And if you don't follow it up within two to three weeks with an, an additional rain event, you lose that bloom too. So there are so many complicating factors when you're dealing with, with an agricultural crop. So that's why, you know, we encourage all of our clients to you know, touch bases with us frequently so that we can, mm. you know, it, it's one thing to know what the, you know, what the rain forecast is going forward, uh, but also to know what the impact is on the crop at any given time. So, because it's so time sensitive. Yeah, I, I agree. And um, so it's actually, I think it's interesting. I think maybe we, we're touching on something that's a bit specific. 
So just to give everybody some background here, if we're talking about the same thing, then in Brazil right now, we've had a period of dryness, right, uh, for quite some time. And then now in the forecast, uh, let's say at the end of September, uh, end of August, rather, and beginning of September, we are seeing some rains, some decent, some decent rains, uh, which, as you said, will, will trigger a flowering. So, um, and I, I know my, my view on that had been, well, I think all things considered, that's kind of bearish. It's, you know, it's good to have flowers. It's good to have rain. The, the plants need rain. And then one of the criticisms I've heard of that view, uh, which I, I think you sh would share, is that if we don't get those follow-on rains now, then, then that's at risk. So what, what's your view now on, you know, do you get those follow-on rains? Um, and, and how accurate are, are what we're seeing that far it, out? It's really, the models really struggle with um, distinct rainy seasons. So they, they have a certain amount of climatology built into them. So these right. models know that the rainy season is about to, to get underway. So that's part of their forecast you know, bias is that mm. they're expecting this upturn in shower activity. So there's a little bit of problem from that standpoint that you have to be a little careful about reading too much into a rain forecast when you're getting into the beginning of the rainy season. So okay. that's the one thing that we're dealing with here. But the other thing that we're dealing with right now is there are some uh, factors um, in both the Indian and Pacific Ocean uh, drivers that um, are, are favoring a drier than normal September. Now that doesn't mean that you won't have rains. And mm. I do think, you know, there is the prospect of some shower activity there in the next, uh, in the six to 10 day period. Um, but it does worry me that if we are truly uh, in a drier biased September that you could run into that problem where it's a one-off rain event and then you slip back into a drier situation. And what's even more problematic perhaps this year is that the crop, you know, has so many strikes against it already, and you're coming off of a pretty decent drought situation as well. Okay, so that's, um, and that leads me to kind of uh, another question, which is with, with, with the, well, I was gonna ask you about the, the length of time that we consider something to be a drought versus, you know, is it dryness? And, you know, the, the, the period of the season is, is relevant too. Um, so I was going to ask you a little bit about that, but, um, it just reminded me, you know, a tree crop like coffee is so different from say a row crop like corn or, or wheat or something. So how much of the plant biology do you have to know as a, a commodity uh, forecaster to kind of, to give good advice and, and suggestions and stuff? On oh, you, you really do have to, you know, you have to do your homework as far as crops are concerned. Cause otherwise, I mean, you're just not going to know. You know the specific, you know the specific specific impacts at any mm. given time. So you know what we do is we we reach out to um, agronomists, you know, within the different communities and for information uh, and do a lot of interviewing, you know, from that perspective, so that mm. you know we can, you know, we're we're not going to be agronomy experts, but we got to know enough to make you know reasonable assessments of how the weather is going to be impacting crops. Right. So, so we do have to kind of play both roles. And I guess you, having seen the impact of your forecast and of the weather year after year, you kind of, uh, you must have a pretty good feel about what, 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 uh, what's going to happen and what the risks are. Um, so in this particular case here, I look at different weather uh, services and I look at say a 90 day 
uh, cumulative for coffee because it's a tree crop. And I'm like, okay, this has got to be, we, we need to be looking at the longer term here mm-hmm. for, for dryness. Um, do you have any heuristics that you use there? Um, and, and does it matter that, you know, I guess we have several different periods of dryness that we can talk about, right? Just sort of the, the January flowering of last year, and then maybe uh, the more recent dryness, but was during the dry season. Um, so what are your, what are your thoughts on, on this? Well, story? I mean, I, I absolutely, I, I applaud you. I do, you know, 90 days is, is a very good benchmark for measuring um, the subsoil moisture content. Um, usually we look at 90 days, if it's falling below 50% of normal over that 90 day period, um, that's sort of a quote unquote drought situation. Um, okay. you know, and so, so that's, that is kind of our shorthand for that kind of thing. Um, but, but certainly, you know, it, 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 it varies as to the time of year and whether you've got heat involved and things like that. So sure. sometimes we do have to look more at the topsoil, you know, and you're right with trees, it's a little different, but, uh, sometimes just looking at the topsoil when you're in a sensitive, you know, temperature situation, you may shorten that down to as much as 30 days. Mm. Um, but you know, the, the thing that's that. And I hope I'm not going off on a tangent on you here, but <laughs> one of you know one of the things that I'm concerned about in specifically in Brazil and you know mm. worldwide, you know, there's definitely things that are changing climate-wise. Um, but in Brazil, over the last 15 years, we've seen such a downturn in rainfall activity. I was just reading an article today about how the surface area of water in Brazil um, has shrunk by. Uh, 70%. And I don't wow. know that I believe that. I just saw that article today. So I don't want to spread rumors. But <laughs> I do know that it's it is amazingly the last 15 years have been so biased to the drier side, especially during the early part of the rainy season and then the end of the rainy season, which you know just shows just tells me that we're shortening that window for the crops, you know, to develop in that area. You know, now granted, it probably has more impact on uh, corn, which they try to do two crops, you know, than perhaps on coffee. But at the same time, it still is worrisome. You know, we've tried to look at this, you know, for the potential causes. And and one of them that we are concerned about is deforestation of the Amazon basis may Mm. certainly be playing a role in this. So um, there's definitely some concern that, you know, this isn't just, you know, an occasional dry spell that we're going to be dealing with. This is going to be more of a, a concern going forward. In, in, indeed, it seems like the risk has shifted from frost in Brazil, this season, with the exception, uh, to, to dryness. Yeah. Um, and uh, along, along those lines, um, one of the things I wanted to touch on uh, is the El Nino-La Nina event. And, but maybe before we get into that, um, what would be helpful, I think, is, you know, we, I look at different weather forecasts and stuff. And, and one of the reasons why people like self are so essential um, in a time where, you know, we have abundant information available is how do we make sense beyond like, okay, here's a nine, here's the, here's a one week forecast, you know, here's a one month uh, precipitation anomaly, something like that. Um, where, where, where are you going to have to take into it? Your expertise as a meteorologist um, going to come in and say like, okay, actually we need to look at the rotation of the earth. We need to look at the sea surface uh, temperatures. Um, and, and how can 
us as traders and analysts um, sort of make a more informed view um, with with some of the longer term. Uh, right. I mean, I, I think the, the most important things that that we offer uh, as as far as, you know, rather than just getting a, a forecast um, is giving some feel for um, the the confidence as far as the forecast goes. Um, you know, I, I, I know our clients over and over say, you know, providing information on what could go wrong with a forecast is almost as important as the forecast itself. Right. Um, so it is, you know, important to keep in mind that these are still forecasts and, you know, that um, and, and, and to have a feel for what may change as far as the forecast going forward. The other thing is, you know, uh, you know, a, a lot of what we do is concentrated in the short term over the next couple of weeks, you know, because crops, you know, are, are, are moving targets. But at the same time, we try to keep our clientele focused on the bigger picture. You know, in other words, in this case, you know, talking about the, the, the tendency for drier conditions to come into play more often um, as, as, you know, as we move through the next you know, few seasons here. So it, it's sort of giving some, some dimensions to the forecast that mm. you, know, you might not otherwise get you know, in a short term if you're in just a short term focus. Right, okay, um, that, that, that's helpful. Um, and before I move into El Nino, uh, one last question on, on, on reading the charts, let's call it. Um, how accurate and how useful are those monthly weather anomalies? Um, Cause I've been following them like, okay, like, and it seems like they change as often as the weather, right? <laughs> it seems like every week uh, that, that, you know, they show me something different. Um, well, actually that's a good point. Um, the, the American model, what, what's referred to as a CFS model actually runs a monthly forecast daily. So, <laughs> so we actually have a, a, a new forecast for the month ahead coming out each day. And what we've found is that the, what works for us is we usually combine it into five and 10, 10 day averages. Mm. And that kind of takes some of the noise out of it. So, That's you know, it, it helps from that perspective. But, you know, at the same point, you know, these month long things, trying to pinpoint, you know, and, and, the, and it gets tricky too, because, you know, like it's coffee is not quite as bad as OJ is in Brazil because OJ is so concentrated in one specific location where it's coffee's a little more spread out, but at the same time, you know, you're the aerial pinpointing on some of these seasonal things is just not, it, it's just never going to be that accurate. So you have to have some perspective, you know, you want to be aware if there's a drier, wetter, colder, warmer bias, you you need right. to take that into account with this, the situation that you're in in the short term. But, you know, it's definitely, we're, you know, we're, I don't know that we're ever going to be to the point where that's going to be as accurate as a two week forecast. Fair enough. Um, okay. But uh, do you, do you give it any stock? Like, does it, um, do you find it like, would you say it's a 50 percent? see, or like just, uh, just throwing, I'm putting you on the spot here, but um, does that, take in, do you take that into a consideration for you when you're making, or do you just not even really look that far out? Oh, we definitely do. No, 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 oh, we yeah. definitely do. We, we, we tend to keep our focus on the, the next three months, right? I mean, beyond that, I, you know, it gets, you know, uh, sure. it's just not as helpful, but, but we do definitely keep, keep track of the, the next three months out. Cause that gives us a, at least a baseline 
for what we're dealing with in the, you know, the, for the shorter term forecast. In other words, let, let's give you an example. You know, I've got you know, this potential beginning of the rainy season from the forecast models showing up for next week. Um, you know, and under a normal circumstances, I say, well, here we go. But you know, because we have, because the monthly outlook um, for September has this drier bias to it, it makes me more hesitant to mm. you know, jump full on that this is going to be a rain event that's going to you know, reach the entire belt. Yeah. Um, and, and there's still the risk that just that rain event you know, is not going to be the all be all as far as getting a coffee bloom established. So, so there, you know, that that's how we utilize, I think the more, the longer range stuff, the monthly stuff, it gives okay. us a backdrop. All right. That's, that makes sense. You're kind of adding layers of, of depth onto it. And, and that that's, makes a lot of sense. Okay. Well, thank you for that. Um, so let's, I keep hinting at it. So let's go, let's dive into El Nino, La Nina. And then I think maybe we can talk, then we can backtrack a little bit and talk more about the frost and what you guys were seeing then. So as far as El Nino and La Nina, you've been talking, you mentioned a little bit about climate change and, or, or you sort of hinted at climate change. And, um, and you mentioned the, the Amazon deforestation. Um, so, Number one, what is the El Nino La Nina phenomenon, and um, are we? Is that changing? Is that becoming more frequent? It feels like it is. Um, <laughs> and uh, is that um, uh, how should we be looking at it? Would be the third. Yeah. Point. So number I mean, one, it, yeah, you go know, ahead. El Nino La Nina. I mean, it always sounds mystical to me, but I mean, it really <laughs> is just a measurement of sea surface temperatures in the tropical Pacific. And the reason that that matters is that the Pacific Ocean is gigantic. And it holds, it's a great reservoir of heat or, you know, cooling. And so it, it acts as the engine that drives the atmosphere. And that's why that area's sea surface temperatures in the tropics are so important to run that engine. And then you look for the, you know, when you have a warmer than normal situation in an El Nino or a cooler than normal situation in a La Nina, um, how that impacts, you know, different areas of the world. Um, you know, and, and it's, it's not, you know, it's not like you can't just say, okay, one, you know, Minas Gerais is going to be dry because of this, but there are, right. there are um, influences that come from El Nino and La Nina that, that, that definitely have, you know, have impacts as far as the, areas. so is it like a, an oscillation between one and the other? Um, um, it is, but boy, it's, it's not, you know, there are some, some oscillations that are much more, uh, well, timely. Uh, El Nino La Nina is not, I mean, it can be anywhere. I mean, the, the standard statement from the, from NOAA is that it can be anywhere from two to seven years, you know, between one event okay. and the other. So it doesn't really, I mean, that that's a lot of leeway as far as that goes. So, you know, right. basically what we're looking at, you know, and there, there are probably 20 models that at least that are being run that are, that are devoted to you know, whether we're going to a La Nina or an El Nino. And, and they all have a lot of different ideas about it, or, and especially with intensities, which makes a big difference. Um, so, you know, we watch those and we watch, you know, what's going on under, under the surface of the waters in the Pacific, because that can be a, a, a clue to what's going to be down the road. But I mean, where we stand right now is that, you know, we're still pretty much neutral as far as sea surface temperatures go, we, you know, we did have our La Nina last, um, last winter. And, and that is one thing that should be mentioned. Winter tends to be when it's at its strongest. So um, we're, we're 
pretty close to a weak La Nina situation at this point. And most of the models do think that we'll be in a, a at least a weak La Nina as we go through the winter months, or actually, well, for Southern Hemisphere, the summer months. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, you know, La Nina is sort of the base state that we're probably going to be looking at as we move forward over the next, you know, six months or so. That is actually one of the, the follow-up questions I was going to ask you was I thought we were in a La Nina last year. And then now I'm hearing again that we're in a neutral with a bias towards another La Nina event this year. So right. I guess it doesn't have to oscillate back and forth. It can kind of repeat. Exactly. Yeah. In fact, we've seen cases where you had probably three, I think three is the longest lived that I can think of. Uh, but but having three in a row um, is not oh. at all unusual. So it's it's okay. it's not unprecedented. <laughs> and so, but is the definition of a El Nino just a certain temperature? Like, if the temperature is this level for this period of time, then it's a El Nino or La Nina? Is that? Yeah, we use a a, a, a base threshold of temperatures either being one degree Fahrenheit below average. Uh, for a La Nina and then one degree above average for an El Nino. So it's, okay. it's, it's so not a lot. It doesn't take yeah. a lot to make, you know, a big difference as far as the driver goes. Well, that's a great segue then because to the lay person like myself, I'm like one degree, what is that even, who, how's that going to affect anything? But obviously this has a huge knockoff effect all over the world because the, the Brazil coffee region is on the other side of a continent from where this is occurring, correct? Right. Um, so how would we expect, let's say, the Brazil coffee region to react um, from, from a La Nina versus an El Nino uh, effect, uh, event? Um, actually, it's interesting. I, I mean, you know, it, you know it, it, from a coffee standpoint, it's, it's unfortunately not straightforward because mm-hmm. the greatest impact from... Uh, a, a wetness dryness standpoint um, is actually Argentina and Southern Brazil. So when you're in a La Nina type of situation, you do have dryness in Argentina and Southern Brazil uh, as a, a very common factor. It tends, you know, in, in, a, in a stronger type of La Nina, you do get that extension up into the coffee areas. Uh, but it's, you know, it's not as straightforward as, as farther to the south in Argentina and Southern Brazil. It is interesting though, in a La Nina situation, you do tend to have cooler than normal conditions in Brazil and Lord knows we saw it this year. <laughs> yeah, inter- okay, yeah, cause I, I, you know, I didn't even put two and two together. La Nina would be uh, a heightened risk of, fr- of frost then as well. Okay, so in terms of precipitation, how, how what's the, could you give it so, you know, uh, a trader can understand it <laughs> or, or analyst, um, um, what is the, What's the climatological interaction that makes it, okay, it's cold on this part of the ocean. Does that like suck up moisture there or how does that affect the, the moisture or, you know, in the, in the region? Uh, it, it's, you know, I don't, I don't want to play voodoo here, you know, because <laughs> you know, it's behind the curtain, but, but it is, it's a complicated process. But, but what the basics are is that when you got, when you have cooler than normal conditions across the tropical Pacific, um, you have less rising motion in the equatorial area. And that's really what drives our weather is air rises in the tropics and then transfers to the north and south, you know, up near the jet stream. 
and then you know and generates the jet stream and your troughs and ridges that affect you know those of us that live in the mid latitudes so you know it's the engine and you know in the if you idle the engine down you know it tends to slow up some of the you know jet stream input you know and things like that um, but what we find is with with you know El Nino La Nina that you can make statistical correlations with it um, but trying to give you all the physical processes behind it is, is kind of tricky, but it's okay. basically, you're either slowing up or speeding up the engine that drives, you know, the well, that makes sense. Actually. Um, number one, one thing I, I know is correlations. So if you could just say, look, there's a series of processes that, that are started by this revving up of the engine or cooling down of the engine. And then we tend to see these sort of corollary, um, uh, actions that that makes sense to me, so mm -hmm. that's that's helpful. Um, okay, so let's go into a little bit the excitement of the Brazil frost because uh, this obviously was a, a huge deal this year. Um, one of the things I'd heard is that, and I think you alluded to it a little bit, uh, was that the dryness actually contributed um, to to maybe to colder temperatures. Uh, another thing I'd love to hear you touch on a little bit is. Um, well, maybe before I ask you my, my specific question, can you just give us a rundown on what happened, what you saw beforehand and, you know, how did it meet your expectations or, or, or throw them out of whack? And, and what did we, what did we see? What happened? Right. I, I mean, uh, certainly the, you know, there, there were two main cold pushes into the area that this, this season. Um, and the first one was, was pretty much as expected. It, it was, it tended to be concentrated in the southern fringes of the belt. It wasn't, you know, nearly as extensive. Um, the second one, you know, I have to say, you know, the weather still always amazes me. And this, that one was, was surprising in um, how deeply it got into the coffee belt. In fact, you know, there were places, key places in southern Minas Gerais and, and northern mm -hmm. Sao Paulo that were actually colder than, than points farther to the south, where you would expect it to be colder. And it was really a product of that high pressure system, calming the air, drying it out and allowing temperatures to plunge really fast in that specific area. So it was kind of a sneak attack as far as, you know, where the damage occurred, you know, and, and, right. and, and some key areas. So it was, it was surprising to me that it, it, it was, as it, it penetrated as far as it did. Did it, uh, did it, did the forecast evolve to you? Was it like a week out? Oh, this doesn't look like that big of a deal. And then one or two days earlier, like, oh, now this is starting to look like higher risk or, um, or did it have a kind of more of a consistent profile? I, it, it, yeah, I don't know that, you know, it didn't change a whole lot. I mean, it was the, it, it was, it, it really was the overnight situation that, that right. made all the difference. And I, you know, I don't know that the models were, I mean, if you looked at the temperature forecast from the models, they were, you know, more looking at, you know, a typical one where right. it was mainly free frost conditions on the southern fringes again. So right. this one really just surprised the models themselves. And one, I, I was a little confused. Uh, so after that second frost, right, the July 20th uh, frost or thereabouts, we also had, oh, there's more frost coming, right? If you remember, <laughs> there was another like a scare shortly thereafterwards that, that didn't really materialize into anything too big. Um, and one of the things that I was a little confused with, for me, I'm like, as a layperson, I'm like, okay, I look at the forecast. If it says zero degrees or less, 
that's a frost. And then I had some other analysts telling me, no, that's not exactly right because there's dew point factors that can, can influence whether or not there might actually be a frost if it's above zero degrees. So is that a case? Is there, is there, is there some nuance there more than just zero degrees in a frost occurring? There is. The, the, the tricky part about it is that, you know, temperature is not, is just not uniform. Okay. Mm. So, you know, if you're in your car and you've got a thermometer in it and you're driving around early in the morning, just look at, if you go through a valley, I mean, it changes a lot. So topo- there's a lot of topography issues involved in this. So what we usually look at is if it's 38 degrees, mm. um, you have the potential for, uh, for frost in that area. And that doesn't mean that you're not, I mean, it's still, 32 is still the magical number for a freeze to occur. Right. But at the same time, coffee is a, a, a more susceptible crop. It doesn't necessarily have to hit that freezing point uh, for da- damage to start to occur to it. Okay. But the, the flips, the, the, the real important fact here is that even if, you know, you've got stations that, you know, your normal reporting stations that are saying it's 38 degrees, you're almost assured that there are going to be colder spots within the area that are getting down to 32. So that's the nuances, you know, we don't have a thermometer every square foot. So, <laughs> so <laughs> right. it, it is one of those where, you know, you have a lot of uh, potential for cold in between, you know, reporting stations. Okay. Thank you. Um, all right, good. So let's, let's shift gears a little bit from the frost. Um, and we can talk about, um, there's a, a couple other areas of the world that maybe some things uh, that are, are interesting are happening. One, and, and I don't know that much about this particular instance, but I, I, someone had mentioned to me the Indian monsoon might be an issue uh, this year. I'm not sure how, how much you, you're following that. Uh, I used to live in India, so I, I had a little bit of experience with the, with the monsoon season, and that's basically just they have a wet, dry season. Mm-hmm. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Um, and are there any issues with it this year that you'd been hearing about, or is that something, is that an area that you focus on or not so much? Well, now, I mean, are, are we talking about it strictly from a coffee standpoint or just the Indian monsoon in general? Uh, both. So, I mean, we could, we could talk about, we could ask, you know, you could give us a little background on the monsoon and what we should be looking right. at there. Right. Um, and, uh, and then is there something we should be paying attention to for coffee? Okay. Yeah. I mean, as far as the monsoon itself, I I mean, this was supposed to be a year um, with a pretty favorable uh, monsoon situation. Um, uh, La Nina tends to be friendlier to monsoons, although we're pretty, pretty neutral at this point anyway. So it wasn't the biggest driver, but we also had what we call a negative Indian ocean dipole and don't, uh, what that again, you know, we, we have all these fancy terms for stuff, but what an Indian Ocean dipole just means okay, water in the Indian Ocean on the western side is often warmer or colder than water on the eastern side of the Indian Ocean on either side of, of the subcontinent. So when you're in a negative Indian Ocean dipole, that just means that you've got um, cooler waters on the western side and then warmer waters on the eastern side and and it's a big enough driver in the indian ocean that it can influence uh precipitation and so with an a negative iod which we've been in this this year 
um, that's usually su supportive of rainfall activity and, and, and the monsoon, helping to drive the monsoon. Now, the problem is, is that that IOD has been bouncing around here recently, and that led to, uh, led to some dry spells of significance. Now, it's been right. more focused on uh, groundnut and cotton producing areas than anywhere else. Um, there are some areas, certainly in the coffee growing areas, um, that have seen below normal precipitation um, over the last oh, three or four weeks now. So, hmm. you know, it, it's, it's not a dramatic um, problem for them at this point, but I will say that, you know, it's still kind of struggling because that IOD has not come back um, up to strength. And so, you know, if we were to hold on to that, you know, poor performance in some of those uh, Western coffee areas, I think you probably could nip the crop still, um, you know, as we go forward here. Okay. Thank you. Um, yeah, I, um, this reminded me while you're talking here about the, the IOD, uh, they kind of gave me some flashbacks of, um, uh, reading your blogs. Um, and one of the nice things about CWG is you, you generally will write blog posts, right. About what's going on, key things that are in the, um, in, in the, you know, that are relevant for particular markets. Um, and then you kind of link back to like, here's what we said previously, or here's some more information on the IOD or whatever. So, um, that's, that's one of the, the parts of your service. I always really appreciate well, it. It's interesting. I'm not trying to do a plug, but it's so funny that you bring <laughs> that up because we had, we just hired a, a PhD this year, um, to, to deal with that exact issue is that, you know, we're always referring to all these magical letter combinations and he's actually put together, you know, little snippets that, that explain it to, to the, to the layman. Uh, in, cool. Your terms. So I, it's been, I enjoy it because sometimes it even confuses me. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. And there's, there's another, um, there's another uh, acronym I was going to ask you about, which is the, the MJO. Uh, which we can we can chat about in a second. Um, but before we get to that, um, I think the other sort of main region that we look at as coffee traders is is Vietnam. I mean, we look, we're looking all over. We look at Indonesia, India, um, Brazil, Colombia, et cetera. And I'll ask you about Colombia too. Um, but with Vietnam, um, how are we looking this year? Um, I, I've heard one exporter say that the conditions have not been ideal, that it's been a little bit drier than, than normal. And I've heard other uh, people with, with people on the ground saying it's, it's totally fine. So uh, what, what's your, what's your view? Oh, that's interesting that people thought it was dry. I don't, I, I mean, if anything, I've been worried about it being too wet there and it's, you know, a little early for that wetness to be a big concern, you know, until you get into the harvest season for the area. But um, yeah, it's, it's been a, a productive rainy season for them there. You know, I, I, I've, you know, I have not had to worry about dryness as far as the area goes. It's interesting. I, and maybe, yeah, I don't know if this is the case or not, but a lot of times the models have been forecasting drier weather, drier weather, drier weather, and it, it just hasn't doesn't materialize. Well, this was a, this is a producer, so they have a bias <laughs> in their, in their view. I know that well. Yeah. Um, awesome. So, uh, and, and so this, this year we're looking okay. We got a, we got a really good start to it. Um, one thing we do look out for in Vietnam or that I always look out for is, is it going to be too wet during the harvest? Um, I think you kind of alluded that as well. Um, but at least the last time I remember everyone worrying about it being too wet 
it wasn't an issue at all. I know a few years ago, maybe I can't remember if it was 15, 16, that it was an issue, especially in quality. Mm-hmm. Um, but what's, what's your view? What's the threshold that you use if you have one or, or the heuristic um, for like, okay, this is, this is going to be a problem or this is, you know, it's Vietnam. It's not a big deal. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting down there because they do have a, a bit of a dry season themselves. So you really do have to push pretty hard to get them into a wetness situation. Um, you know, and, and as you mentioned that, that back in, I guess it was, I'm terrible with years, but you are right. It was a few years ago. We did have a wetness situation. I, I think that the, the, what, what'll make the difference, you know, I, I, I'm a little worried because the rains keep exceeding model expectations there. Right. And they certainly are running in, you know, for the last couple of months, well above normal, as far as rainfall activity goes. But I, I think that what will really make or break the situation for them is, is if you get um, a, a lot of tropical activity coming across that's not interrupted by typical typhoon development. Now, mm-hmm. you know, recently we've seen uh, certainly typhoon activity going on, but uh, if you don't get, those typhoons help to pull some of that moisture away from the train <laughs> the tra- trade wind train that goes into Vietnam. So it's important for, for those to occur. So, but I, at this point, I don't know that I have a, a real strong bias one way or the other, as far as that activity goes. So I, okay. I, I don't, I don't really foresee anything that's really that detrimental at this point. All right. So uh, since we talked about wetness, I'm going to ask you about Columbia and that'll be the last uh, origin I ask you about, but I, before we do that, one of the things that I, I thought was fascinating when I did my brief, you know, layperson study of, of meteorology was the the Madden Julian oscillator, um, and I know that's 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 particular relevance to I think Indonesia and and Asia. So can you give us a quick overview of, of what that is, and 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 should we be looking at that as as coffee traders? Oh man, you're really killing me now. <laughs> the, MJ, the MJO is even more complicated, but what what we've found is that in the tropics, there are areas around the globe in specific areas around the globe where thunderstorm activity in the tropics is enhanced. Mm. And so they've actually broken it into what they call eight phases where phase one is basically um, the Western side of the Indian ocean. And then phase, you go all the way out to phase eight out in the Pacific ocean. And so they find that when this tropical activity fires up, say in phase one, if it's strong enough, it tends to propagate to the, to the east. So it goes from phase one to phase two, three, four, you know, down the road. And where that tropical activity is intensified um, has impacts uh, on a much gr- larger basis, you know, sort of like right. El-, El Nino, La Nina is only right. in like the Pacific. Knockoff effects. It still influences yeah. things. Yeah. So MJO is sort of the same beast, but in a much shorter time frame and dealing with thunderstorm activity rather than sea surface temperature. So, um, you know, we do watch how that evolves. So if I, if I know that I'm going to be in a phase one, say, um, and, and it looks like it'll progress, then, you know, I know that in probably about two weeks, we're going to be in phase four, and I can make projections based on statistical correlation as how that's going to impact rainfall activity in other areas, say Indonesia or, or Colombia or wherever. Yeah. 
Right. Okay. Um, yeah. So it sounds like you use it as kind of like, you know, it has these eight phases. The way I was taught was like, it's essentially, and maybe I'm butchering this definition now, but it's basically like a thunderstorm that bounces back and forth between two sort of poles. Um, that was my sort of understanding. Oh, actually, well, it, in its purest sense, it really is, it goes, it just goes one way. So in other oh, words, okay. it, 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 the easiest way I can explain this is a traffic jam. So in other words, if you get a, a bunch of cars that get stopped, okay, and, and then you know, they start to spread back out again, you'll, if you watch that on, you know, from up above, you know, that, that area where, it, the, the, where there's this jam, log jam, right. actually propagates forward as things move forward. So it's really, it, it is sort of a log jam of thunderstorm activity, but it, it, it always moves. But well, it goes in one direction. Sense, it always moves from west to east. Okay. And, and like El Nino La Nina, it has a bunch of sort of corollary um, activity that's associated with it that we're right. watching right. for. Okay, great. Um, so the last thing I wanted to ask you um, is about Columbia this year. Um, I've been following the weather. Uh, and the, the one thing I can say is that it's been wet, <laughs> uh, which normally is great. Um, and um, because they have a mid crop, I guess maybe it is good to have a lot of wetness year round. Um, but what's your view? Is that is that too much uh, precipitation? Is it going to have a negative impact or should we just be expecting a, an excellent crop this year? What's your thoughts? Well, it, it's funny because it, it, it's tended to be, it, you're, I mean, you're right. In, in some of the key growing areas in the, the south uh, part of the country, I mean, it, it's been really wet. Um, I don't know that it's been detrimental uh, at this point. Um, and what keeps me from thinking that we'll, probably go that direction is that if we do slip towards La Nina, that tends to cut down on rainfall activity to a certain extent. So famous last words, but <laughs> I mean, the, you know, the La Nina component would actually help to cut down on the wetness factor for the area. Okay. Excellent. Uh, well, thank you, David. Um, this has been a lot of fun, kind of. Uh, I love nerding out on coffee stuff. <laughs> so uh, this, you really labeled me to, to get my fix here for, for meteorology. It's, been, it's uh, been great to have an opportunity to see you again, Ryan. I appreciate it. Likewise. And uh, yeah, is there anything else you want to leave us with? Or um, um, I guess if people are interested in, in uh, I think you offer a trial, right? For oh, your, yeah, for your services. Um, so people, if you're interested, um, David Strait here, Commodity Weather Group. You can check out his website. Uh, is it commoditywx.com? Is that correct? Yep, that's it. All right. So thank you again. Uh, look forward to chatting with you. And uh, we'll, you'll see us soon uh, on, on YouTube or uh, the, the podcast. So Awesome. All right. Take Thanks, care. Thanks, Ryan. My pleasure. Thank you for joining our inaugural Coffee Trading Academy podcast. Check out the website and subscribe to receive our free and premium coffee market reports. That's www.coffeetradingacademy.com. Again, coffeetradingacademy.com. Good luck with your trading, everyone. This is Ryan Delaney, your Coffee Price Risk Ninja here, signing off.